Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very interesting founder. It's a founder that is tackling a real problem. I mean a problem that certainly has come to light, you know, during the past couple of years and now more than ever. So I think that the timing is is really incredible with everything that is happening with climate change. Uh, but I think that uh, you know, really we're gonna learn also about the full cycle, about running out of money, about walking away from investors. I mean, you name it. So I guess without further ado, Brendan Milstein, welcome to the show today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So originally born and raised in Berkeley. So so how was life there? Tell us about it. Absolutely. Berkeley was a wonderful place to grow up, and it is where I became very passionate about uh, climate change and solving it. It's where I met my co-founder, Rafael Rosen. And when I grew up in Berkeley, it was uh, well before the first dot-com boom. So it was a very different place. It was not yet part of Silicon Valley. Uh, so Raphael and I grew up five blocks apart. We've been best friends since we met in kindergarten. Uh, at the time, he was the only person who could beat me in minute math. Uh, he is he's a wonderful person despite that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I became very passionate about climate change uh, in high school. and. Berkeley High back in the 90s was a little different than it is today. Uh, so it was a lot of sons and daughters of professors' kids and a lot of kids from parts of town who were really struggling and very little in between. And I spent a lot of high school failing to help those around me. Uh, so in my four years, we had six principals. We had 20 fires, one of which burnt down the B building. Uh, and I was in low-income tutoring programs and after-school programs where I really felt like I could not move the needle. Uh, but my senior year of high school, I took a nuclear engineering class at UC Berkeley. And here is this way to use math to improve the lives of billions of people by stopping climate change. And completely unlike education, the financial incentives were totally aligned. Uh, we could just hand people money to do the right thing for the planet. So figuring out how to hand people money to stop climate change has been my cause ever since. Wow. And we're talking about years and years ago, way before like all this incredible, you know, like movement that has been happening the past couple of years. So, so I guess, I guess, what did you see there that maybe like almost nobody was seeing? I mean, now there's still people that are not aware of, of what's going on, but I mean, back then, I mean, it was not, you know, front and center. So, so 
what happened? Yeah, this nuclear engineering class was really good. It was split into three parts. Uh, so one was on medicine. Uh, so stuff like x-rays, uh, MRIs, which actually aren't radioactive at all. Uh, one was on electricity and nuclear power. And one section was on how to deal with the waste. And in the section on electric power, uh, we learned about climate change. And specifically, we learned about the human elements of climate change. So the professors showed us research uh, actually from El Nino and La Nina. So we have a ton of good temperature data going back decades, uh, as well as data on malaria. And as temperatures increase, you can see rates of malaria expand and geographies of malaria expand. Uh, and then when La Nina comes back through and cools things back down, uh, malaria retracts. And what's going on there is mosquito breeding seasons are actually temperature dependent and they expand when temperatures go up. Uh, so we learned about a lot of health impacts like that. Uh, hurricane wind speeds are correlated with ocean surface temperature. So as the climate gets hotter and the ocean gets hotter, hurricanes get worse. Um, we had Katrina in 2005 was one of the earlier hurricanes that was just completely catastrophic. Um, and so that happened a few years after this nuclear engineering class. Uh, but we learned basically just a ton of ways like flood damage is made worse by climate change. Storm surge is made worse by climate change. Uh, wildfires in California are made worse by climate change. And not just California, but the Midwest, Montana, the Mountain West. So there's, there's a lot of human problems. And the research underpinning them uh, was all shown in this class. And uh, it was shown in a way where it was also combined with the fact that there were profitable things to do to solve climate change. And that combination of here's something we can do where we don't have to win hearts and minds, but we can just give people money to do things that will help billions of people. That was what was so appealing to me. Very cool. And and obviously in your case, you know, rather than sticking around there in on the West Coast, you actually decided to go to the East Coast and uh, you studied physics. So so why physics? Sure. Uh, I studied physics uh, largely because Harvard at the time had a very uh, a completely world-class physics department, whereas there wasn't even an engineering school. Uh, and I knew I wanted to try and solve climate change. And at the time, we still did need technological progress. Uh, and I absolutely love math. And so physics and engineering seemed like the most practical, fast ways to be able to help stop climate change. And I was at a place where physics was the stronger of those two. Got it. So so I know that um, also after this, I mean, you're, you're like a Swiss army knife. I mean, you, you've studied in Harvard, then you've done Stanford. I mean, you, you've gone to the best universities and more importantly than that, the places with the best networks. So... Um, why Why did you decide to really dive a little bit more into on the business side, you know, by doing your MBA? What was there for you to learn? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So after college, I had followed a girlfriend at the time to New York. Highly recommend. Wonderful place to follow a girlfriend <laughs> or significant other. Um, and I did energy policy for the state of New York. And I was... Uh, incredibly lucky here. Uh, I had three bosses at the same time, which you'd think would be a disaster, but each one was just an incredible mentor, a wonderful engineer, uh, and so dedicated to both trying to help me and stop climate change. And so it was an incredible learning experience for me. Um, however, 
the challenge with energy policy as part of state government is that you can't do anything out of the state. And one of the things that was made very clear to me while working in state policy in New York was that there's a very serious limit with government that doesn't exist for the private sector. And the private sector, if you can figure out something that's profitable for customers and profitable for you, you can do it everywhere in the world. And that is what is needed to stop climate change. So I went off to Stanford to uh, get an MBA and learn how the private sector worked in a little more detail. And while I was there, uh, I was enjoying the university so much, I added an engineering degree as well. Uh, and that was very helpful background for starting Carbon Lighthouse. So tell us about those conversations there, because obviously uh, Carbon Lighthouse was immediate, immediately after you got the, the degree from Stanford. So tell us about, you know, like perhaps some of those discussions, you know, like maybe with Raphael, your friend from kindergarten, you know, like it's, it's amazing that you guys are doing this together, uh, by the way. But, but tell us about, you know, those conversations. How did those conversations between the two of you sparked about maybe envisioning a future where you were fulfilling uh, a need, a concern? Absolutely. So Raphael, like always, was uh, always a little bit ahead of me. Um, so we had talked, you know, since college about, or even during college about starting various companies, uh, based on technologies we were seeing in physics lab together. Uh, and after college, he had, he was the first, uh, non-founding employee at a solar company. Uh, so he helped grow this firm from, you know, three people and no revenue to, I think, 15 people and 25 million in revenue. Uh, and a couple of years ago, this firm actually cleared a hundred million in revenue. And this is not at all surprising to anyone who knows Raphael. He is the world's most methodical, intelligent, but also earnest person you could possibly meet. And he is effective in basically everything. Um, so while we were, while I was finishing up at Stanford, uh, we were continuing our discussions about starting a company. Um, and I was trying to convince him to co-found Carbon Lighthouse with me. And ultimately, <laughs> I just wrote his name as co-founder into a grant application because uh, it, based on the the literature, it seemed like we were much more likely to win as a partnership rather than an individual founder. Uh, so I wrote the application and then just sent it to Raphael and said, hey, Rafi, please edit. You'll note you're listed as a co-founder. That is because I want you to co-found with me. And that really kicked off the uh, most egregious part of the recruitment effort to get Raphael to officially <laughs> co-found with me. Um, and then three months later, he agreed. <laughs> and and were, like before you sent him this, were you like uh, kind of like warming him into this idea that you were thinking about or, or was that like out of the blue you just sent him that? No, I was, I was warming him, but that implies a level of tact and subtlety that is not for most in my nature. <laughs> <laughs> so I was pretty bluntly, we were discussing everything together. Okay. And then what do you think what was the trigger there for him to to have three months pass of making you suffer until he said, okay, Brendan, let's do this thing? <sighs> That's a better question for him. He was evaluating, so Raphael also loves math, and he was evaluating PhD programs in applied math, applied physics, other areas, uh, and had actually gotten in. Um, and so we, we specialize here at Carbon Lighthouse at getting people to drop out of their PhD programs. Um, so I think it, it took a little time for him to take the mental plunge uh, away from academia and into the business world. And he comes from a 
his dad is the chief scientist at Livermore National Labs uh, and runs our, uh, the U.S.'s uh, research efforts into fusion energy. Um, so he, he comes from a, a very academically uh, efficient family, I shall say. Um, so joining the business world, I think, was uh, something he needed more than an hour to contemplate. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. So, so then, Brendan, tell us, tell us what happened. So, so now, three months later, Raphael says, okay, let's do this thing. What happens next? Yeah, so I was still in school. So uh, we founded during my, my last year, my second year of business school. Um, so I ended up condensing my MBA and engineering degree into two years. And then during the second year, we launched Carbon Lighthouse together. Um, so that period of time was a little nutty. Uh, and we, we started, uh, this will resonate with every entrepreneur and maybe be new to some of the non-entrepreneurs, but most of what we did right at the beginning of the company was recreate the wheel, right? Like you have to open bank accounts and you have to set up QuickBooks and learn accounting and set up an accounting system and you have to incorporate and you have to learn what the difference between an LLC and a C-Corp and an S-Corp and a partnership are. And like, it's all of this work that doesn't actually benefit the planet, but is vitally necessary. Um, yeah. So there's a learning curve there. We wrote business plans. Uh, we applied for a ton of grants. We lost almost all of them. We applied for all of them again. Uh, and on the second or third try is when we started winning. Uh, and then importantly, in the last two months of school is when we started calling customers. And thankfully, we had the insight as uh, physicists that we figured we could basically figure out how to make the technical system work. Uh, but we needed clients. <laughs> uh, and so we started calling everyone we knew, asking them if they owned or managed commercial real estate, asked them for introductions to anyone they knew who might own or manage commercial real estate. And in those first couple months, we made well north of a thousand phone calls. We called a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend uh, and basically exhausted everyone in our network and their network and their network and their network. And part of the challenge here uh, was that it's really hard to sell when you have no sales experience, no track record, no case studies, the world's worst website. Like we were good at physics, we're not good at making websites. <laughs> um, as if you want to venture into the Wayback Machine and look at CarbonLighthouse.com from 2010, you can witness for yourself. <laughs> um, so it took us a long time to win a customer. Uh, and when we finally did, uh, and this was totally foreseeable, but we didn't foresee it at all. The, the challenge is that the person who was willing to sign with us when we had no track record and obviously no real idea what we were doing, this was someone who cared deeply about the mission and who wasn't risk averse. And that person had already signed with 10 other energy efficiency companies because they cared about the mission. And so when we got to their building, it was a nightmare. It was the world's most efficient building. And we had just made one or 2,000 phone calls. We had $10,000 to our name. And we realized we had to make it work at this building, even though there was no low-hanging fruit, and no medium-hanging fruit, and all the equipment was brand new. Um, so we were two panicked, nerdy physicists. And in that case, you know what one does is get $2,000 worth of sensors measure everything and pray someone missed something in the data. Yeah. 
and our entire technical system was unplanned. But what happened was out of this panic, we knew we had to measure everything and hope someone missed something. And sure enough, they had. And we were able to eke out 3% whole building savings, uh, which wasn't very much, but it was enough to now have one happy customer and a reference. And it made it very slightly easier to win the next building. And the same exact thing happened. The next building, low hanging fruit gone, medium hanging fruit gone. And now we had $20,000. So we got four grand worth of sensors and measured everything. And this time we were able to get 4% savings. And the whole technical system built out of this basically panic and uh, necessity of 2010. Very nice. And, and one thing that happened as well there is that the first couple of projects did not go so smooth, especially with the technical <laughs> system. So what, what happened there? Sure. We had a couple of large misses. In that second building, uh, we had thought we were able to turn off a pump all the time. Uh, there were a couple pumps supplying cold water to the various air conditioning units throughout the building. Uh, and we thought we were pumping more water than we needed. And it turned out that was true almost all of the year. But this was a building in Sacramento. And when it was more than 100 degrees in Sacramento, you actually did need that second pump, uh, which was too bad because we had turned it off. And when that pump was off, the next time, which was like a week later, it was 105 degrees, all of the air conditioning in the building shut off. And what was particularly painful about this was on the uh, sixth or ninth floor of this building, there's a federal court. And it turns out if you turn off the air conditioning to a federal court on an 105 degree day, <laughs> you can be held in contempt of court, which was something I learned day of. Um, so thankfully, we weren't. And uh, thankfully, we were able to uh, fix everything relatively quickly. And the uh, contracting firm we worked with was really good at that building. Um, and so they were able to get the building back up and running. And then we were able to install an algorithm that did real-time monitoring of the actual temperature in the air conditioning loop and could kick on that second pump when it needed it. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was not what I would call a smooth implementation. Yeah, Nerve-wracking for sure. So, so I guess, uh, Brendan, for the people that are listening so that they are able to get it, what ended up being the business model of a Carbon Lighthouse? Yeah. So from the very beginning, we thought it was very important to align the financial incentives with the environmental benefit we were trying to deliver. Uh, and so we wanted to deliver profitable climate solutions. Uh, so what we do is we charge a fixed monthly fee. And in exchange for that fee, we guarantee we'll deliver savings above a certain amount. Uh, so for example, we might charge 100 grand a year and guarantee we'll deliver $250,000 a year uh, in savings. And if savings are greater than expected, client keeps it. If they're less than expected, we write a check to cover the difference. Uh, and this adds up very significantly. So across a portfolio of 50 or 100 buildings, uh, we might be you know, saving the client uh, $10 million a year. And the way buildings are bought and sold is they're valued uh, like a perpetuity. So that 10 million bucks gets a 10x or 20x multiple on it. Uh, so we're worth anywhere from 100 to $200 million in profit for the landlord. And they don't have to do anything because there's no major construction. It's all using sensors and controls to make the existing equipment work better. And we take the financial risk. Okay. And then how does this impact all of the carbon emission you know, stuff? 
Yeah. So commercial, the reason we started with commercial buildings is that commercial and industrial buildings are responsible for about 40% of U.S. carbon emissions uh, and globally 30%. So it's this huge source of emissions. And uh, importantly, about 70% of those buildings are third-party owned. Namely, a landlord owns the building and leases out space to tenants. And because of that third-party ownership, there's a lot of split incentives and challenges in the market. So there were no firms that are effectively able to sell energy savings to this market segment, but it's a huge source of emissions. Um, so that's why we tackled that market right from the get-go. And it, it was awful, by the way. I mean, there's no other firms that are able to serve this market because serving this market is a nightmare. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of problems. So the, the first one is in most commercial leases, the landlord has to pay for everything, but the tenants get the benefits. Um, and so you have to solve that. And then the landlord doesn't care about energy in the first place. So the value of the building is 300 or 500 bucks a square foot, but utilities only cost two or three bucks a square foot. So you've literally two orders of magnitude to cross before anyone cares. Uh, and then if that's not bad enough, it's a multi-party transaction. So the landlord usually outsources property management. Uh, so you need to get the property manager on board. And the property manager outsources facilities engineering. So you need to get the facilities engineer on board. So you have three different firms, all of which can say no. Only the landlord can say yes on a topic no one cares about where there's misaligned financial incentives to begin with. Uh, so we didn't know any of that when we started the company. We just knew no one was selling successfully to that sector, and it was a huge portion of global carbon emissions, so we ought to figure it out. Um, so that took us six years to figure so, out. So when it comes down to, because obviously there you were talking about lack of alignment, uh, and, and obviously people were failing in the past from really being able to, 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 to fulfill or to be able to succeed you know, in, in doing this. What do you think you guys did differently in order to, to, to get it right? Yeah, here I will say our environmental mission is what was different about us, which is any large Fortune 500 firm is going to give up on this challenge after losing a bunch of money and years on it. And any reasonable startup is, well, either going to go bankrupt or pivot and sell to a different sector. Uh, and we were unwilling to do that because this was a huge source of emissions and it was unaddressed. Uh, so we just kept at it when everyone else was giving up and we figured out how to make it work. Um, so part of this was we ran really lean. Uh, so we were actually profitable every year from 2010 through 2014, and we never raised funding uh, during that time, uh, specifically so that we could stay focused on this problem until we felt we had cracked it enough. And by the way, that is just the mentality of a, a founder of San Francisco, right? I mean, it's where growth is everything, <laughs> you know? It's like <laughs> unbelievable. When, when we finally did start talking to investors, I had to say that like six times because it, it wasn't clicking with people that there could be a profitable firm out here. It was, yeah. it was kind of amazing. <laughs> In you many know, ways, it, we were a better fit with New York investors. Super interesting because, you know, now, you know, like when you hear... Uh, no, our company is profitable. Investors think like, oh, you know, like uh, they're not doing so well and they needed to cut costs and they needed to extend <laughs> that way and that's why they're profitable. I mean, in this case, it's, it's because you guys, you know, like were right off the bat. It's not because uh, things were wrong. It's just the, the nature of it, which is amazing. Yeah, thank you. Well, call us crazy running a profitable enterprise out of Silicon Valley, but 
it seems like it had worked for the rest of the world for thousands of years. So it seems like a good approach. Absolutely, which is which is amazing. So so let's talk about now the you know fundraising because I know that you know like you were just talking. So so obviously you guys did your your first round in two thousand and fourteen. So why mm-hmm. why I mean you were profitable. So why why did you guys think about raising money from from outsiders? A couple of reasons. Uh, the first was we finally had enough proof to ourselves that the technical system was working. Uh, so we had made all these predictions, like nitty gritty engineering predictions and buildings going back to 2011. And by 2014, they were all still coming true. So we were confident that our software platform was was viable. Uh, and the scale of climate change does not merit patience so well. I mean, it does to some extent, but there are $7 trillion spent per year on fossil fuels. And if we are going to stop climate change, we need to capture or eliminate all of that. And that's a, this is, this is a mind boggling, bigly big market. We could do a trillion dollars in revenue and be a mere 14% of the way towards our goal. And so we just didn't, see a way to scale up large enough to matter quickly enough to matter uh, at the pace of growth we could go while needing to manage profitability and cash burn. Okay, got it. And obviously in this... Yes, those are the reasons. And in this case, uh, I mean, 2014 also was was an interesting year for you guys. I mean, you had a a little bit of a cash crunch there and, and, and actually the company you know like was off payroll so so what happened <laughs> yeah so 2014 was a profitable year but a profitable year and having enough cash every single month turns out are not the same um, so what happened was at the time we used to work more with utility incentive programs and a couple of those programs paid us uh, anywhere from like 6 to 18 months late and so we had a cash crunch so rafael and i started uh, the year in 2014, on January 2nd, we took ourselves off payroll. And by February, we had taken off all of the VPs. Uh, so that meant six of the 10 of us were off payroll. So we had 60% of the company off payroll uh, in February and March. In April, we got the VPs back on. And by June, everyone had been paid back the back pay they were owed. Uh, and we were back to having strong cash flows. We were back in a, a position of good financial health. Uh, and so then in July, we started a fundraise, basically, as soon as we were uh, through that. Uh, and we were we were very fortunate. We were uh, not a single person left the company during that time. We were starting on January 2nd, very transparent, completely. We had a monthly check-in on our financials and what was going on uh, with everyone in the company. Um, so everyone knew what was going on, and uh, we toughed it out, but that was pretty miserable. How many people did you have at the time? Uh, ten. Ten people. Got it. I mean, it's amazing when, when you're able to have like people for the for the right reasons with you, know, and 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 they're really tackling the problem rather than trying to get the paycheck. I mean, it's it's really where you can create an incredible culture. What do you think? You know, like those tough moments and 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 having that uncertainty really really made you know for the culture of the business. I mean, certainly for Rafael and I, we had a takeaway of always having far more of a cash runway in the bank uh, than would be than we'd been operating on the previous four years. Um, so that was a, a nice little lesson there. Uh, and we were 
fortunate in that we had always from the very beginning hired for people who were extremely smart and hardworking and nice, but also very driven by the problem. Uh, and we, you know, that, that payroll policy where we went off first, we didn't come up with that. We actually took that from Toyota Motor Corp. And that was a policy Toyota had always had. They had never, I think for like a hundred and something years, they had never laid off or terminated anyone except for cause. And then just after World War II, uh, you know, Japan was in tatters, the global economy was in tatters, and Toyota for the first time ever had its had a cash crunch. And at the time, Mr. Toyota himself took himself, like he fired himself first before he then did layoffs so the company could uh, continue on. And Raphael always thought that was a great model. And when he shared it with me, I immediately agreed. Uh, and so we had actually shared that with employees from the very beginning. Uh, when they started, we said, hey, by the way, we have this policy in the event of something bad. Uh, and we started that in 2011. And then in 2014, we actually needed to use it. Um, so it wasn't new to anyone that we were doing it, uh, although it was obviously new that we actually had to implement the policy. Got it. Got it. So so how much capital have you guys raised to date for the business? Uh, $73.5 million in corporate equity and $65 million in project finance. So $133.5 million total. Got it. And, and I know that, you know, going back to the, to the early financings, um, and obviously, you know, there's different trenches in which you guys have done this, but at the Series A level, there is something that you did that is uh, incredible. You walked away from an investor. I mean, what what the hell, Brandon? What happened? <laughs> yeah. So the the environmental motive is that is a whole reason we started the company. And Raphael at one point was working at a high frequency trading fund in New York, printing money. Um, and so there's there are other places anyone at this firm could be, uh, but we are we are here because we want to stop climate change and. Because of that, we were always very cognizant of who our investors were. So that was a big reason we didn't have investors at all from 2010 through 2014. And then when we finally did take investors in 2014, uh, we did not give up control of the company. Uh, so Raphael and I still have voting control of the board, uh, and we have control of uh, majority voting shares as well. Um, and so in our Series A, we were continuing to look for investors we really trusted. And there was one firm uh, where there were a couple of different partners at the firm and our main exposure had been with one and he had been absolutely amazing. And there was another person at the firm we'd had less exposure to. And that person, as we, we'd already signed terms, we're moving forward. And then that person we gained more exposure to. Uh, and it, it just wasn't going to work out. Um, and because our mission is so sacred to us, it is so important who we have involved in the company. Uh, and so we had four months of cash left at the time, and we chose to walk away from the deal and start the roundover. Um, so that was a, a little bit of a, a nervous period of time, uh, but completely the, the right call. And I'm really excited to say, actually, we ended up we did make it work with that uh, firm. There was some personnel reshuffling. Uh, and so we now do get to work with that guy who is so phenomenal, which has been really great. That's amazing. And, you know, it's a, it's a remarkable uh, story and situation as well because 
in many instances, you know, especially when you are dealing with the clock and and you know you see the money going down and down on the bank account, you make very stupid decisions that are triggered by <laughs> by desperation. And and what founders don't realize is that when you apply a bandaid, you know, to a problem, you're gonna have to require surgery down the line. And and sometimes, you know, like what you guys did, you know, like really, because the way that you raise money today really impacts the way that you can do it tomorrow. So it's amazing that you guys were able to do this. So so I'm wondering, I mean, obviously, I'm sure that you and Rafael needed to have a serious discussion here to really understand what was going on. And 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 you were talking that there was like not not a clear alignment with 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 where you guys, you know, wanted to take things forward. Was there like a specific moment where you said, okay, that's it, you know, let's we gotta we gotta uh, part ways here. Yeah, um, there there was, and <sighs> Raphael really led very well here. Um, so I I had been leading the discussions with that firm, and I was filling Raphael in on what was going on and saying I was having th- second thoughts, and he didn't waver for a second. Um, and I think I had been much more willing to try and figure out how to make things work. And he was just like, absolutely not. We will be successful. I have faith in us. We can walk. We can start over. It's going to work out. And he just had complete faith and confidence in that and was completely correct. I mean, that round ended up being uh, 2.4x oversubscribed, I want to say. Very nice. Uh, and was a, was a huge success. Um, so he, he had the, the correct read on that, both short-term and long-term. Uh, and I'm really, really glad we we followed his his unwavering compass there. And did you guys have like um, parallel conversations going on, or did you have to like activate from nothing uh, new conversations? Well, we were already under exclusivity period, so we had to start over entirely. We had wow. to reactivate from nothing. Wow. So I guess uh, during those times, um, because obviously, I mean, the clock is ticking. So how do you how do you quiet down the voices, and how do you focus and and execute? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I do it through exercise. So I'm, I'm very lucky in that. Uh, so I was not a morning bird by temperament or nature, uh, but my wife is. She was one of those women in college who, even though it was college, still woke up at 6.30 a.m. and went for a run every day. Um, so she'd done more She'd had like three days every day by the time I woke up. Um, and over the years of our marriage, she had slowly, slowly, slowly converted me to being more of a, a morning bird myself. Um, and so I wake up really early and get a ton of exercise. And as long as I lift very heavy things every morning, uh, I can be perfectly calm all day. Uh, so I'm I'm delighted to have discovered that about myself. Very nice. Well, if I'm ever moving, I'm gonna I'm gonna call you up to to move some heavy things. So uh, I'll I, that in mind. <laughs> I highly enjoy picking heavy things up off the ground and putting them back down. It's literally one of my favorite things to do. Very cool. Very cool. So Brendan, so how big is Carbon Lighthouse today? How many employees do you guys have? There are 135 of us now, and shameless plug, we're trying to get to 200 by the end of the year. We are hiring for almost every role, so please visit our careers page. Very cool, very cool. So I guess uh, let's talk about here the, um, the vision a little bit. No? Let's uh, say that, that you're going to sleep tonight, and you're waking up five years later. And all of a sudden, when you wake up, the incredible vision that, that you guys set out to accomplish for Carbon Lighthouse, it's realized. What does that world look like? Five years is a really interesting time. So five years from now, 
we should be doing a billion or more in revenue, but still growing very quickly and very profitable, uh, which means we should be seeding tons of other companies. Um, so I don't consider us a energy efficiency company. That just happens to be our first product. Uh, so the way we look at the world is actually very similar to how an oil or gas firm looks at the world. So oil and gas have oil reserves and Carbon Lighthouse has efficiency reserves. And roughly two thirds of all of the energy used uh, is wasted. So 50% of up to 50% of energy in buildings is wasted, but there's waste at the power plant before it even gets there. There's waste in the transmission system before it even gets there. Uh, so there's this huge reserve in buildings and throughout society uh, of wasted energy where we can go make it more efficient and capture that waste for ourselves and our clients while fighting climate change. And so five years from now, uh, we should be in residential buildings. We should be uh, helping to address transportation issues. We have, we get about a thousand times more data in every single building than has ever existed before. So we have this huge amount of data, uh, which lets us do all sorts of different things. And we should be leveraging that data uh, to drive additional savings in buildings and more types of buildings um, like that. Uh, we need to be international five years from now. So the US is only 15% of carbon emissions. Uh, which probably means we're licensing the software we use internally to lots of firms all over the world so other firms can cut energy use in buildings as well. Got it. And and obviously now, you know, we, we've been discussing this and, and climate change is, is definitely top of mind. I mean, Greta Thunberg, for example, cover of time. And and I, I guess, you know, like there's there's more consciousness uh, around this. So so my question here, you know, the, the, the one that comes to mind, Brendan, is do you think we still have a shot at saving the planet? That's saving the planet? Absolutely. I, I think two degrees is going to be really hard, but there are worse consequences beyond that, like a next ice age. And I think we can avert those. Um, so the thing that makes me so excited is how much technology has changed and costs have changed just over the past decade. So I studied physics in college because we needed technological change. I'm pleased to say we don't need that anymore. Uh, so to put real numbers behind this, since we launched in 2010, the cost of solar has come down 90%. 90%. This is insane. This is like being able to buy a sweet Ford F-150 pickup truck, but instead of costing $50,000, it costs 5K. Wow. That is unbelievably different. Everyone would be driving different cars. And yet people don't know this because the cost has changed so quickly. And so if you're using numbers that are even three years old, you're hopelessly out of date. Batteries, for example, uh, we actually had batteries back to like something like 1802 or 1803 was the first battery and, you know, 100 years before the electric grid. And the cost of batteries from 1805, call it, to, to 2005 came down roughly 3% per year. And then starting in 2005, 2006, it's been far higher, uh, you know, more like 10 or 20% or 30% reduction in cost per year, depending on the year. Uh, and this is driven not just by electric cars, but actually first by phones and laptops. And so these price changes have been unbelievably fast. And solar 
in 2005 was something like 500 times more expensive than a natural gas power plant. And now it is significantly cheaper. So the, like the world has changed almost entirely in the past 10 years and no one knows yet, <laughs> which is amazing. Uh, but we don't need technological change. Carbon Lighthouse, I think we're, we're in one building that pays something like three cents per kilowatt hour. This is cheaper than almost any part of the world. It's way cheaper than the grid in China. And we have a completely profitable project there that's saving something like 30% of the whole building energy use without replacing major equipment. That's uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm extremely bullish. Solar has come down, wind has come down, batteries have come down, efficiency is already five to 10 times more cost effective than anything else. Uh, electric cars are not just getting more cost effective, but they're really fun. Like if you sit in one, you know, electric motors have constant torque. So it's like you're always at 5,000 RPM. Like you touch the gas pedal and the thing just takes off. It's like driving a mini rocket. Um, so I, I am actually very optimistic right now in our ability to get at the problem because it is so profitable to actually solve it. For sure, for sure. So Brendan, uh, if you had this, I mean, this is a question that I typically ask the guest and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send it your way here. Let's see, let's see how, how you respond. So imagine you have the opportunity to go back in time. And you had that opportunity to go back in time knowing everything that you know now and everything that you have gone through with Carbon Lighthouse, which is amazing. Through the financing, through the walking away from investors, through the cash crunch, you name it, everything that you've learned. If you had that opportunity to go back in time and have a conversation with that younger Brendan, perhaps the younger Brendan that was at Stanford, thinking about changing the world, thinking about launching a business. If you were able to speak with, with your younger self and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? <laughs> uh, in my particular case, I think the advice would be to try and relax a little bit more. <laughs> um, so I'm, I can be a little bit intense and uh, it's not exactly that I would want to work less. Uh, work ethic has been probably 90% of our success, but I think I could take things a little less seriously. So, you know, it's not that everything will always work out, but as long as I'm working hard, that's all that matters. Either it'll work out or it won't, but there's nothing else to do. So work hard and try and relax and, you know, there's no way to enjoy all the parts of the ride. Like it sucks being off payroll. It's worse having your employees off payroll. Fundraising obviously has ups and downs. Um, it's stressful knowing you could be held in contempt of court, but there's a lot of enjoyable parts too. So relax more, work plenty hard, but try and enjoy the enjoyable parts of the ride, I think would have been advice I wouldn't have listened to at all, but would have been helpful if somehow I could have. <laughs> I love it. You know, and the other day I actually, uh, it was saying, I heard from someone that said that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, once you have removed a problem, guess what? You're going to have to deal with another one. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good stuff. Yep. Good stuff. So Brendan, uh, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, we have, well, certainly if you're looking for work, go to the careers page and apply. Um, 
Otherwise, we have info at carbonlighthouse.com, and the team that reviews that email does a pretty good job routing internally. Amazing. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. It's been a, a real pleasure and an honor. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.